It seems right now we are more divided than ever. Or perhaps this last year has merely exposed the chasms that already existed. Most of the time, it seems easier to avoid the hot topics altogether in order to keep the peace. After all, aren't we supposed to be the people of peace? But what about those deeply held values and beliefs? Aren't those worth standing up for? Drawing lines in the sand over? Going to battle in defense of? We'll dive right into some of these hot topics. Political divide, racial justice, fake news, conspiracies. Oh, we're going there. Hi, I'm Laura Crosby, and today I'm going to be reading our scripture passage. Um, it's amazing to me how men and women, ordinary men and women, have made brave choices throughout scripture in the midst of conflict. And um, as I read this, it's a, it's a com compilation of chapters 1 through 5 of Nehemiah, but um, I'd encourage you to listen because Often we tend to say, this person is a contemplative, or that person is so about social justice. But as you listen to this passage, listen to the rhythm um, of Nehemiah, and what, how would you characterize him? So, here we go. Now, in the 20th year of the king, I was in the capital city, and Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Jerusalem. I asked about these Jews who had escaped and survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant who survived is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now I was cupbearer to the king so I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And the king said to me, why is your face sad as if you're not sick? Then I was very afraid. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. So, we built until all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But then Sanballat and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward, and they were very angry. And they all plotted together to fight against Jerusalem. So we prayed to our God and set a guard, half of us, held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out, while the other half built the wall. So the wall was finished in 52 days, and when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt ashamed, for they saw that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Will you pray with me? Gracious and heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the examples of ordinary men and women throughout Scripture who trusted you, who made hard, brave choices, who turned to you for guidance, for wisdom, and then spoke and then acted. Father, we pray that you would bring a word to each of us as individuals. Speak to us now through the sermon as we listen to your words. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You're, you're minding your own business at a party. And somebody comes up and asks, well, what do you think about George Floyd? Do you believe that fake news stuff? Can George Bush and Joe Biden both really be Christian presidents? Is this racism talk too politically correct for you? And by now, everybody at the guest table, everybody in the whole room is looking right at you. How do you respond? We almost called this series The Elephant in the Room or Poking the Elephant in the Room. Our first reaction always is, don't go there, don't talk about that. Don't go there, but, but we've got to go there. How does Menlo Church equip you to engage your culture? Without the church coming across as political and not biblical, political is usually code for partisan, right? Partisan is usually code for the other side's position. But you know what I mean. How did Jesus' followers decide when and how to engage with tough issues out in the public square, whether that's over the lunch table or the church pew or the water cooler? You, you remember those when people actually, you know, had to go into the office? When we talk with kids or colleagues, with skeptics of religion who either say that Christians only care about heaven or we just call on God to reinforce our political point of view. And it's tougher because we live in an echo chamber of social media. I heard a pastor the other night say that the only result of a year on Twitter is that people get dumber and madder. I, I think there's some truth there. For me, there's constant tension that's amplified by the media with images of riots at the Capitol or racially divisive trials of old people being beaten in the streets. And if you dare to poke your head up into that mess, how does faith in Jesus shape what comes next? Let's go there together. Let's start with four weeks of easy topics. Like I said, today, public engagement, talking about talking in the madness of a bitterly divided society. Next week, let's talk about race with Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, talking about it from the uncomfortable inside out, many of the different faces of race. The third week, we'd like to talk about fake news and the truth. What, is faith, what does faith say about conspiracies? And then let's end by going there, uh, talking about whether it's science or faith, even in Silicon Valley. This is important. There's so many examples of how dangerous it is, has been for the church not to engage well in public. For every time we applaud the church in the civil rights movement, there's the caution of the Crusades. Christians ended slavery in England. But for every William Wilberforce, there's the Spanish Inquisition or priests who helped drive Hawaiians from their land. So should we engage in such a contentious public world. I'll end with a biblical point of view, but I, I first I want to ask you, what's your point of view? I, I want to bring into the room a, a famous theologian. I don't know if there is such a thing as a famous theologian, but Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture. 
saying that there historically have been four different ways that Christians respond to the culture around them. Each of them come in a box. The first one is Christ above culture. Christ above culture is usually what we think of when we think of the hermits of the early church or the monks of the Middle Ages or the Amish people walking around us now. These these followers of Jesus see that the only way to remain faithful is to remove ourselves from society or to make ourselves so distinctive that everybody can tell we only follow Jesus. Now, these people are never a majority, but they often have real influence because they're willing to pay the price, to be mocked, or in the Mennonites' case, to say, no, we will not fight as pacifists. But by and large, Niebuhr says that people who see Christ above culture withdraw from public life. That's probably some of you. Uh, The second one that Christ talks about is, I'm sorry, that Niebuhr talks about is Christ against culture. Now these followers of Jesus, see Jesus calling them back into public life, usually defined by what they see as wrong in the world, what they're against in the world that's marred by sin. Often that's moral issues, whether it's abortion or alcohol or pornography, the sex trade. So often faith can get co-opted when it's Christ against culture because Jesus can become a card-carrying member of the moral majority or he can become the policy director of the National Council of Churches. The primary role of faith in Christ against culture is to fight against the wickedness of our culture. The third group that Niebuhr points to are folks who say that, no, Christ is found in culture. And this is an old one from the very beginning of the time when the Emperor Constantine became a follower of Jesus. Soon after, all Romans had to become Christians. And in the Middle Ages, everybody in the West is a Christian, and the church actually saves civilization. But it becomes so intertwined that there develop state churches. Some nations even develop the saying, one nation under God. In Christendom, to be an American was the same as being a Christian, whether you believed it or practiced it or not. It had a huge impact on the culture. The faith propelled hospitals and universities and charities. But Christ in culture often leads to a confusion of the American way with the way of Jesus. So when Niebuhr points to Christians who are Christ in culture Christians, It's because they identify their faith with their culture. They identify it. And that sets up the fourth box that Niebuhr talks about, where Christ and culture means Christ transforming culture. Now, this has got its roots in the Reformation. And frankly, this is the Presbyterian distinctive. Jesus' followers were called back into their culture to be part of the transformation of world values to kingdom of God values. They didn't see the separation of church and state as good or bad. They didn't confuse the two. There's no sacred, there's no secular. It all belongs to God. The rallying cry for these folks is a Dutch pastor who becomes a scholar, who becomes a prime minister. His name is Abraham Kuyper. And the way he says it is this, 
There is not one square inch of the moral universe over which my King Jesus does not cry out, mine, this is mine. Whether it's at the school or in arts or at work or in the home or even in public life, the cry of those who would have Christ transform culture is to renew culture with faith. And we see that in real life, whether it's somebody like a conservative senator, Sam Nunn of Georgia, or a, or a moderate, Mark Hatfield of Oregon, or liberal governor Harold Hughes of Iowa. Faithful people lead differently. It's, it's, like, it's like a secretary of state from Menlo Park. They leave the safe places to serve Christ, bringing the values of the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's on earth as it is in heaven. So what about you? Where are you in Niebuhr's Christ and culture? Are you above it all, withdrawn, even just to your TV screen? Is your passion for culture marked by what you're against in this wicked world? Do you believe that it is Christ in culture, that the American way is close to God's way? Or are you engaged in transforming culture toward the values of the kingdom of heaven? You know, even in this church of enormous influence, most people never run for office, rarely get involved in a campaign. Most seek quiet lives to bless their neighbors, to to follow the Apostle Paul who says, pray for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And when you do get involved, remember the school board is as important as the Senate. When we poke our heads up, when we open our voices, it's never an easy fit. It never was an easy fit in the Bible. There are just examples all over. Joseph is sold into slavery and imprisoned, but 13 years later, he's appointed the prime minister of pagan Egypt. Esther is put into a harem, and there she's used by God in the king's court to save the Jews from extermination. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the Persian king, and God used him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The apostle Paul, he writes, to the saints in the household of Caesar. And Paul called Erastus his brother in Christ. Erastus was the director of public works in Corinth. That means he was the treasurer for this incredibly pagan city in Corinth. The classic, of course, is Daniel, right? Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're exiled from Israel. They're employed in Babylon's civil service. And because of their excellence, they were constantly promoted and tested. Daniel becomes one of the most respected governors of Babylon. And, and when the Persians come and conquer Babylon, Daniel not only survives, he thrives even in the face of adversity. Because God's leaders succeed, but they also get thrown into the furnace. They do wonderful things, but they're also fed to the lions. They lead differently. So I want to spend the rest of the time talking about what do these men and women of faith have in common? What's the litmus test for leaders of faith in the arena? Uh, let me start with C.S. Lewis. Lewis said, if you read history, 
you will find that the Christians doing the most for the present world are just the same ones that thought the most of the next world. So the apostles who set out on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire, those who rebuild society in the Middle Ages, English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all of them left their mark on earth because their minds were occupied with heaven. Lewis says, aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at the earth, and you end up with neither. So for me, this is the most important thought from our time today. Something I have heard three different times in the last 10 days from a protege of Tim Keller, from John Ortberg, and from Rick Warren. Since it's almost the same words each time, they must be quoting somebody, and this is the quote. The church is bitterly divided today because many Christians have put their primary identity into their political beliefs rather than have their primary identity as followers of Jesus Christ. Again, the church is bitterly divided today because many of us Christians have put our primary identity into our political beliefs rather than have our identity remain as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so hard to preach. It's a, it's a house divided, a, a church at war. And there are a lot of preachers who reinforce that. So stop for a second and think. Is that primary identity true for any Christians that you know? Here at Menlo or, or someplace else? Is there anybody who might say that about you? I mean, we'd all say that our primary identity is in Jesus, right? We're here. But would the people close to us, the people who argue with us, would they see that same identity today? So I, I want to talk about Christians who would be leaders or get engaged in the mess. And I, and I think that all of them would share at least these three distinctives to start with. The first, for me, is that there is a clarity between means and ends. And, and but what I mean by that is that faithful people act in ways that point to the work of God instead of claiming to have the inside track speaking for God. Daniel stands in front of a pagan emperor and says, there is no wise man or enchanter, no magician or diviner, that can explain to the king the mystery that he's asked about, this dream he's asked to interpret. And Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Faithful public servants serve God rather than just parroting whatever the party line is. Now, I love this quote of Scott Saul's. The Jesus I follow is too conservative for my liberal friends, and he's too liberal for my conservative ones. I want that true of me and you. I think the second distinctive for people who'd get involved in the clash publicly is that people who follow Jesus should have a different tone. Rich Mao calls it convicted civility. We have convictions, but the way that we treat our opponents does not turn them into our enemies. The way we treat our opponents shows our belief that every human being that we see is created in the image of God, and we treat them like that. This is a lesson that uh, Laura and I learned 
in the Holy Land. Every time we go, and we've gone many times, every time we go, we try to see one of our friends. His, his name is Daoud Nasser. This is Daoud. Daoud's a Palestinian. He, he lives just outside of Jerusalem in a little place you've probably heard of called Bethlehem. He rarely gets to go into Jerusalem because he's Palestinian. But he is also a Christian. He's part of that 2% of the Holy Land who follow Jesus as Palestinians. Daoud's family has a vineyard that they've owned for over 100 years. The title was given to their family by the Ottoman Empire. It's the only thing that keeps them on their land. They're in a little valley and they are routinely attacked by Jewish settlers who ring the vineyard. They come and they cut down the vines sometimes. They have taken the road that leads to their place and filled it with potholes and put huge stones in the way. So literally you have to stop and walk into their property. And as you get to the gate, you see a big rock. I feel like I'm coming home when I see this rock. Daoud's family has put this rock at, this, at the corner and it says, we refuse to be enemies. We are followers of Jesus Christ and we will love our enemies. We refuse to be enemies. That's a different way to lead. The Apostle Paul knows it. Out of jail, Paul sees other people eclipsing his reputation, trashing his reputation in the process. Here's the response of a leader who follows God. He says, some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They're not sincere, but they think to afflict me in my prison. So what? What then? The only thing that matters is that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and so I rejoice. One mark of a faith-filled worker in the public square or a leader is their view of other people and their view of themselves. Uh, you'd, you'd have to say that Moses is the greatest leader in the Old Testament, right? It says, there never was another like Moses to whom God spoke face to face as to a friend. The parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, going to the Promised Land for 40 years. What marks Moses? It's not what you think. Numbers 12 says, now Moses was a humble man a more humble man than anyone else who walked the earth. The most famous leader retains a personal humility which allows him to be a leader who serves instead of a person of power where others serve them. As you look at your leader, as you look at your leadership, what tone are you setting? Is it a refusal to be enemies? Is, it, is there a humility there? That sets up the third distinctive that I believe about faith and the public square. And that's with all these voices yelling at us, we are called to lead without bias. We are to lead with an eye on the least and the lost and the left behind. In the Old Testament, often the least and the lost and the left behind are the Jews. The Bible's bias is not against the wealthy and powerful. The Bible is a cautionary tale about the impact 
of power and wealth on the unfair justice, the injustice given to the poor. Remember what I said? The Jesus I follow is too conservative for my liberal friends and too liberal for my conservative ones. The scripture says uh, that when Nehemiah, remember the scriptures of the beginning, when Nehemiah heard about the ruin of Jerusalem, he sat and he wept and he prayed for days and he began to lead all the people together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But at the end of Nehemiah's success, the walls are rebuilt. It's only chapter five in the book because he united the people to build the walls and then the rich began to take advantage of the poor. And this is how Nehemiah responded. He said, so I held a great assembly and I said to the rich, as far as we are able, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. But now you, you sell your brothers so they might be sold back to us. You must walk in the fear of our God. Return to them immediately their fields and their vineyards and everything else you've been taking from them. And all the assembly said, Amen, the poor and the rich. And they praised God. And the people did what they had promised. Scott Sauls reminded me of uh, biblical leaders in the midst of the public battle in the in those days before COVID. You remember that? He said this. Jesus said his followers would be a light to the world and a city on the hill, a wildly diverse, compellingly unified multitude of earthbound citizens of heaven. This multitude would have the impact of a virus. It'd be a pandemic, but a virus infecting the world with love. They wouldn't crawl into a corner. They'd position themselves in every corner of God's world. The city of God penetrating the city of man. Jesus's multitude would be counterculture, but in a way that's for the culture, not against it. Friends, today it's not about winning or losing elections or political battles. It's about how does the way that we stand up in this bitterly divided time, show that we refuse to be enemies, that we are humble. How does the way we stand up bring honor to the only king that we serve? So today, go out to your brunch with your conservative politics or your progressive worldview, that's fine, and ask yourself where you are with Christ and culture. What sort of leader Jesus wants you to be? What sort of follower you want to be and who will you follow? Ask yourself whether your answers speak to your ultimate identity as a child of God and a follower of our one King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the God of peace and justice will go with you. Amen. We'd, we'd like to make this um, not the only time that we talk about this issue. And uh, so uh, the staff have arranged that we will do a uh, little midweek gathering. And in that time, I am going to interact with my daughter, Katie, uh, who is at work in the middle of Washington, D.C., in the middle of that divisive place we talked about 
on the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee. I'm going to ask her the lessons that she's been learning, the things she's been seeing about leadership and faith. You can see it Wednesday night or you can watch it all through the week on YouTube in the second half of the week. God go with you.